Dress. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Well-dressed listeners, we would like to welcome you to the party today. (laughs) Yes, welcome to the party, the holiday party, of course. (laughs) Tis the season. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And Cass and I had so much fun last year doing our hypothetical gift exchange of gifts from history that, well, now we've decided to make it an annual tradition. Yeah, this was super, super fun last year. We dug into the archives, into, um, you know, Vogue magazines, et cetera, et cetera, into museum collections and gifted, quote unquote, each other things from fashion history. And of course, I want to say, you know, we do not obviously condone actually pulling things from museum archives and wearing them. Cough Kim Kardashian, (laughs) cough Marilyn Monroe. Um, But, you know, this is just a really fun way for us to kind of get in the mood for the holidays right before we go on our annual hiatus and, you know, have fun kind of guessing what we think the other person would like um, and then sharing with you a little bit of history along the way. Yes. Well, I think that we should just get right to it because I can't wait to give you the gifts that I got for you, Cass, and I can't wait to see what you have in store for me. Yes, super excited, April. Would you like to go first? Sure. Well, um, I had to order your first gift way in advance because it had to be shipped from France, where apparently serving these crackers is all the rage at dinner parties. My first gift to you are some Rimmel's costume crackers. How do those sound? Those sound amazing. And also I'm thinking of costume jewelry. So I'm very curious what these costume crackers <laughs> are. <laughs> well, you, you you are like headed in the right direction. So before you whip up an appetite, there is one thing that I should probably tell you about these crackers. They are not edible. They're delicious and they're sweet perhaps, but not for eating. Um <laughs> As described in the December 1868 issue of Harper's Bazaar, quote, Rimmel's costume crackers are very amusing and in Paris are brought on with dessert at fashionable dinner parties. They are huge mottos which, when pulled, explode with a loud report and disclose grotesque paper caps, jackets, etc. Oh, yes, crackers. The guests put on the articles which fall to their share amidst shouts of, laughter. And I think this is so charming, and I think that we should bring this back. Actually, April, I do this every holiday season with my family. These still very much are a thing. I did not know that. Yeah, I would say more a European tradition than American, and I think we started doing them because Sean's sister lives in Ireland with her husband, Sam and Sarah. And yeah, you like pop these open. I'm going to send you some now. Um, You pop them open (laughs) and they have like little paper crowns in them. And then there's like little games and kind of a whistle that everyone plays to create a song. So it's super, super fun. I had no idea the tradition extended back so far though. Mm -hmm. 
And, and specifically, you could get ones that were specifically that had little paper garments in them, which was really sweet. Um, and then they also talked, this um, one particular article also talked a little bit about other crackers, which also seemed very fun, that they were rose water or violet crackers, and they contained, quote, fountains of these perfumes. So Ooh. if you want to send some of those along, too, I wouldn't be mad. <laughs> Let me head back in the uh, fashion history <laughs> time machine. It was so funny when I was thinking about this episode. I don't know if you're a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure fan. I've seen it. <laughs> what I say was a fan? Not so much. For those who don't know, they had back, Bill and Ted head back in like a uh, phone booth time machine to history and collect all of these historic figures like Socrates and Napoleon, and they put them in their time machine and bring them back into the present. Um, so we can hop, hop maybe in our 18th century carriage and head back in time to get these gifts for each other. That sounds good. Which I actually did not have to head back in time. I just headed over to Christie's magnificent jewel cell auction last year in in Geneva for your first gift. So April, I happen to know that you are going to be partying like it's 1788 at Versailles next summer. Yes, that is that is true. And so will you. Yes, 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 yes. I don't know if you want to tell dress listeners a little bit about it. We are, are of course, going to be there next summer for a couple of weeks and you have this on your agenda. Do you want to tell people about this Versailles ball? Yes. So we have talked about uh, Fête Galant on the show before. Fête Galant um, is the one night of the year that you're allowed to be at Versailles in costume. Um, and it's a very fancy event. Um, all the historic costuming community comes out. I mean, they bring their A-game. This is serious. In historic business. 18th century dress. Like Yes, 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 yes. So what we're talking about is actually not that gallant. Um, <laughs> it is this other party that I discovered that they do at Versailles in June. And it is the Grand Masked Ball. So it is an, a masked ball that is um, held in the gardens at Versailles mid-June. Um, and it's separate from Fat Gallant in that it's more of like a dance party, like a rave. <laughs> and I think they're kind of like conceptualizing it as if you were at a party that was thrown similarly feeling in the 18th century, but bring it forward until today. So costumes are required, as is wearing a mask the entire party. And you better bet my butt is going to be dancing in the orangery <laughs> at Versailles, June 2023. And hopefully you'll be wearing this gift that I bought you because, Ooh, you know, yeah. I just spent a little bit of money and bought you some of Marie Antoinette's diamond bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you don't find this tale too morbid, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. And um, I read this Town and Country article about the history of these bracelets. So they said, during Queen Marie Antoinette's final years, when she was locked away in the Tuileries Palace in Paris, she secretly packed her jewels in a wooden crate and sent them to Austrian ambassador Count Mercy Argenteau for safekeeping. Feeling so confident that she would soon be exonerated and be free to retrieve her jewelry, the doomed monarch even ordered a Bergue watch while awaiting trial. Obviously, she would never get the chance to claim neither watch nor box of jewels because Marie Antoinette was sent to the guillotine in 1793. So more than two centuries later, a pair of diamond bracelets that had been packed away in said wooden crate have resurfaced and they were sold at Christie's Magnificent Jewel Sales in Geneva on November 9th of last year. This is a chic three-strand bracelet, pair of bracelets. They're set with 112 diamonds and valued between $2 million to $4 million. 
dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is certainly the gift of a lifetime, I have to say. Yes. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, you're absolutely welcome. Enjoy. And I will be more than happy to repatriate the uh, the bracelets back to Versailles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they only put me out $8.2 million, but um, go ahead and gift them, <laughs> re-gift them, <laughs> no problem. Well, now that makes my next gift to you, which is also jewelry or jewelry adjacent, um, seem a little shabby, <laughs> um, but it is jewelry. It's actually an add-on for something that I gifted you in our previous gift Ooh. episode last year. Would you care to venture a guess what that might be, given that you have the hint that it's jewelry adjacent? I mean, I love a good chatelaine always, as we know, so that would be... That would be yes. my guest. <laughs> yes, that would yes, be yes. my guest. It's for your Chatelaine, which I gifted you last year. Um, it's an add-on Ooh. of sorts. It is a silver lyre, which is, of course, an ancient stringed instrument. And, and it has detachable pins as the strings. And it's meant to attach to your Chatelaine. Um, and so Chatelaine's uh, pin cases were super popular for Chatelaine's, little stick pins that they carried around in like a little box. But in this case, this is more of a figural piece in the shape of a musical instrument. So whenever you need a stick pin, all you have to do is pop out one of the quote unquote strings of the lyre and voila, there you have it. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so um, this is sourced from Harper's Bazaar, 1891, the December issue. Its retail price at the time was $9.50, which would be about $300 today, which is a far cry from the $8 million that you spent on my gift. Hey, you know, I don't have expensive tastes, so I appreciate this, absolutely. Um, And you know, I I love a good Chatelaine, so... I was like, I was curious actually, because it's kind of like a, like an oversized charm of sorts, right. like really, you know. So I was like, I wonder how much charms are going for today. So I popped over to on the Tiffany's website to see how much their charms are for their uh, charm bracelets, and and this would have been about the same price as a kind of more on the simple end of a silver Tiffany's charm today to add to your bracelet. So. Decidedly more useful, though, with the stick pins. Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners who might not remember what a chatelaine is, we've talked about them a lot because they're fascinating. But it's basically women would wear their purses on their hips, basically. It's like a belt that had everything you could possibly need um, at your fingertips. Scissors, keys. um, Yeah, it was kind of like a charm bracelet with the idea that it was connected. Mm -hmm. It's like a charm belt almost. And they could Mm be um, decorative or utilitarian, um, but they're just one of those items from fashion history that went away that we want to see come back because they're so beautiful and so cool. Yes. Well, now you have an extra accoutrement for your chatelaine. Merci beaucoup. So I am heading back to the 30s for your next gift, April. And Mm -hmm. let me just tell you, you recently mentioned on our Scaparelli episode that we revamped and re-aired earlier this season that you were dying to get your hands on a piece of newspaper print Scaparelli. Um, yes. which And you said it's incredibly rare. So if anyone has it to, you know, reach out to you. And you are not lying. Like, you cannot find it anywhere. I looked really, really hard throughout fashion history. I took our little carriage. I went all the way back to the 30s. Um, No, I am... 
So the Philadelphia Museum of Art has a scarf. The FITM Museum, um, Fashion Institute of Design Merchandising in LA, has a swatch. And I think maybe the Musée des Arts Décoratifs has a, like a blouse or a, a scarf, but it's super rare. However, I actually was able to find you a handbag. What? Yes. Um, that I read about in Women's Wear Daily, December 4th, 1936. And they write about how she has these novel resort bags at Dunhills. One of the most interesting novelties of the season was advertised recently by Alfred Dunhill of London, Inc. A series of handbags created for resort wear. These are fashioned of a Scaparelli newspaper print imported by them, a white crepe with black design, which is a faithful facsimile of current papers. There are two bag types, a cigarette holder and case and tobacco pouch. Anyways, isn't that fabulous? I have certainly never seen a purse version. So there you go. Happy, happy holidays. (laughs) Thank you. But for real, if anybody actually does... have Scaparelli newsprint stuff. I'm going to say it again for like the fourth time on the show. Hit me up. Um, Okay. So, Cass, our regular listeners probably know by now that you had a baby this year. And of course, new moms are always looking for ways to simplify their lives. And I've got your back because my next gift to you is to help with laundry. Oh, thank you. I do a load every day. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, I'm going to gift you some Putnam dry cleaner. It is supposed to cost one-eighth the cost of professional dry cleaning and works wonders on, quote, laces, fine waists, silks, embroidery, furs, suits, skirts, curtains, etc. And apparently it works especially well for white gloves. You can get your soiled gloves as good as new by, quote, washing them in a mixture of Putnam dry cleaner and gasoline. Using a stiff brush. (laughs) You're so kind. (laughs) Be sure that you rinse them also in clear (laughs) gasoline. This quick and easy and inexpensive method makes gloves look like new. Wow. So your gloves might look like new, but I bet they smelled like pew. I mean, (laughs) can you imagine going out in public Wearing gloves that you just soaked and washed in gasoline? Oh my goodness. No, I cannot. And you also have to wonder, I mean, it's one thing to advertise something, to, right? And it's another to know if someone actually used it or how many people actually used it. So there's a question for you. Well, well, a couple of different questions. And I had that exact same question. And I was like, okay, so I found one instance of this. I found instances of these ads for like the next seven years. Oh, no. So... Yeah, so they this was this was a thing. It was like into the nineteen early nineteen twenties. These ads were still running. Um, on this particular one, I found in nineteen fifteen in Good Housekeeping magazine. But it also like begs the question: What would happen if you were wearing these gloves that were had been soaked in gasoline and then you lit a cigarette? Oh like, my goodness! When I was looking for the other articles and found all the additional advertisements, I was more looking for like an article of like somebody went up in flames. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. So I guess you are going to have to test it. And I try am it have out. to test it. I'll let you know. <laughs> well, thank you, April. Thank you very You're much. Welcome. I don't know if you should thank me. For that 
Um, again, dress listeners, this is just a fun opportunity for us to like also air out um, some interesting research tidbits we've come across <laughs> on this season. So April, I happen to know that you are a huge fan of one Gerda Wegner. Mm-hmm. You've, of course, done an entire episode about her in our very first season. Um, she was really a prolific artist, um, an illustrator of fashion plates, erotica. And so I actually tracked down a book entitled Sur Talon Rouge, illustrated oh. by Gerda Wegner in 1929. Um, it's the second of Eric Alatini's books to be illustrated by Gerda it was published by Georges Briffaut in 1929. And so it's a romantic novel set in 18th century France in which everything is undone from language to high fashion. It is in many ways a clever play on the French penchant for the galant, which we talked about earlier. Um, and Gerda Wegner's actually, it's 12, not nine illustrations, are a highly skilled pastiche of engravings from France's romantic past. And I'm reading from honesterotica.com that did a little bit of a review for us. It has pictures of these incredible, I mean, illustrations. They're so Gerda, like that equal parts, like eroticism, sensuality, but also that characteristic, her signature wit and playfulness. Um, Mm -hmm. And so such a beautiful book. Um, There was only 449 copies and I got you one. So happy, happy holidays. Thank you. And actually, you know what that does is it rounds out my collection of pieces from Sir Talon Rouge because I actually already own one of the plates. Oh, fabulous. Yes. Now you own an entire book. Yeah, you mentioned that um, it's erotica and I'm not going to tell you what is happening in the plate because... It's not safe for work. <laughs> as many of thank her you, are, as many of her uh, <laughs> pieces are not, I guess. Something we can um, expressly describe to you on here, but you'll just have to go check it out for yourself, dress listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can Google it on the internet, and it'll they, they will pop up. Okay, Cass. So to make up for what could be a potentially disastrous gift that I gifted you last. (laughs) This is a nice one. Um, And it's a really good thing that I happen to live in New York City because I had to, and there doesn't seem to be any other way that I could have gotten you this gift if I didn't live in New York. I had to show up in person for this one to the business show that was being held at the 25th Street Armory on October 21st, 1916. There, I had to make my way to the booth of the Oliver Typewriting Company, who invited all business girls of New York to meet Alice Brady. And apparently, Alice Brady was a very fashionable star of the Broadway stage at the time. And also, she was like an early silent screen actress as well. Uh, During the 19-teens and the 1920s, her wardrobe was also regularly discussed in fashion magazines, um, in Women's Wear Daily, and also in the New York Times. So she was a very fashionable it girl of the moment. So upon arriving and meeting Alice in person, who was at the Oliver typewriting booth, she took down my name and my address and promised to send me what I am gifting to you, which are, dun-da-dun, paper patterns for, quote, the ideal office gown. Oh, interesting. this ideal office gown was designed by none other than Lady Duff Gordon. Oh, well, thank you. I'll take it. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) So these paper patterns were intended for, quote, businesswomen and stenographers with full directions showing you how to make this model at a cost of only $18 for materials and findings. And what I think is really uh, fascinating about this is $18 at that time might seem like a bargain today, but in 1916, that was somewhere around the equivalent of $500. Holy moly. For a DIY dress. And it kind of seems a little bit outrageous to me for daywear, for a sewn-at-home office look, that you would be spending that much money on the materials. Like, what stenographer had an extra 500 bucks to drop on a single outfit at that time? You know, maybe, I'm guessing that she probably wouldn't be a stenographer if she did. I mean, maybe the idea was because it was a pattern you could make that dress in, like, 10 different incarnations, right? You can make it in a bunch of different fabrics and then you got maybe five dresses for 500 instead of just the one. Yeah. So so I don't know. But um, this is also the exact same year that Lucille launched a mail order collaboration with Sears and Roebuck. Those dresses, which were made to measure, you would send in your measurements to Sears and Roebuck and then they would make it custom for you and then send it back. They were also quite expensive, about $500 to $900 in today's money. But those were made for you versus these that are the paper patterns and then you have to go out and spend $500 on materials. I don't know. But let me know when you uh, get your dress whipped up. We'd love to see photos. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned mail order catalogs because my next gift for you comes from a mail order catalog, but not from Sears. It comes from Montgomery Ward, um, which (laughs) like Sears has been around. I don't know exactly when the mail order business started, but at least in the 19th century, this specific gift comes from the 1890s. And April, I am gifting you not one, not two, but three different attachable bangs. Oh, yes. (laughs) I think this might be payback from last year. If I'm not wrong, I think I gifted you some detachable bangs last year. (laughs) Oh, that's funny if you did, because these are new. I'm not re-gifting them back to you by any means, but the first is the La Tosca. It would be very appropriate if you did. (laughs) The first is the La Tosca bang. Quote, ladies who do not require large, heavy front, um, which is another word for bangs, will find this a little gym, light and fluffy, ventilated, and it has a ventilated foundation, and that was $1.25 in 1897. Then we have the feather bang, which is a new fluffy bang, of fine natural curly hair for $2.50. And then we have the princess bang made of natural curly hair on the weft, which is a popular bang being light and easy, and it's the least expensive at 50 cents. And then, you know, I actually sent them a sample of your hair that I discreetly took <laughs> off your pillow when you visited me in August. Um, and so, you you know, the hair colors should match. Um, and I hope you enjoy. And what's really fascinating and interesting is that they also had, you know, this is human hair. They also have men and women's human hair wigs. And that included full beards. So mustaches on wire, goatees, and even whiskers for any gentleman friends. Yes, 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 yes. This is amazing. Um, I just want to say, dress listeners, Cass and I did not tell each other or discuss what we were gifting each other at all before we're doing this episode. So it just happens to be that my next gift for you also happens to be hair-related, Cass. Um, and anyone who knows you in person knows that you have incredibly thick hair. 
I'm always so jealous of it. If I had that much hair, I it would always end up in knots because mine's a little bit wavy. But um, <laughs> you would never know because it's always in a top knot, as you know. <laughs> well, you know, I think we could both probably benefit from your next gift, which is also holiday appropriate because it is eggnog shampoo. Oh, thank you. I love a little eggnog. <laughs> That's right, friends. Quote, the private shampoos of America's foremost hairstylist now can be yours if you accept this thrilling offer from Mr. Lewis for his shampoos containing real egg. Apparently, these were sold in distinctive egg-shaped containers that (laughs) held enough concentrated liquid for five or more shampoos at home. And that's not all. Cass, if you happen to save the box top from your eggnog shampoo package and you fill out the blank form inside the box, you can send along a snapshot of yourself along with $1.50 in today's money. And Mr. Lewis will personally send you his own suggestion for the hairstyle best suited for your personality to make you look your loveliest. Oh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you, Mr. Lewis. And also thank you, Charm Magazine of December 1944. (laughs) Well, I'm heading back, I guess, to the early 40s for your next gift. Actually, that's not true. It's 1935 to 1940. I am gifting you a Golden Grotto lipstick and perfume presentation kit by Lucien Lelong. Oh, yeah. you know I love lipstick. Oh, couturier extraordinaire. Um, 1935 to 1940, of course, we know that Lucien Lelong is largely responsible for keeping the French haute couture alive and in France during World War II, so not shortly after. But I guess he actually had been creating perfumes under the name Parfume Lucien Lelong in 1926. So this particular set that I'm talking about is in the collection of FIDM in LA. And they have this wonderful blog where they constantly are highlighting objects in their collections. And this is one of them. It's this beautiful gold, you'll love it, gold and silver glittered container. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it has two lipsticks and two perfumes. And so that blog tells us that he introduced perfume in 1926 and that he, you know, shortly after established a Chicago branch of his perfume company. And the company produced Lelong's perfumes for the North American market, along with other Lelong branded cosmetics. And the Couturier took a very personal interest in the appearance of his perfume and cosmetics, often designing the packaging himself. And I guess, actually, the museum got a huge donation from someone who worked in the company in America. So they have a huge collection of this, like, of these beautiful Lelong cosmetics in their collection. And I am gifting one to you. Well, thank you. Maybe next time we go visit Kevin, Christina, and Lee, they will uh, let us look at them in person. Yes. That would be amazing. Okay. Are you ready for your next one? I am. Okay. Well, I'm actually not sure if you are. So here we go. (laughs) Um, If Mr. Lewis, you know, the hairstylist, because you're going to send in your photo and get your hair recommendation, if he recommends an updo for you, your next gift will probably come in handy because you're going to want to show off your dainty earlobes to their best advantage by adorning them thanks to your Pierce Your Own Ears at Home kit. Oh. Offered in Women's Wear Daily in November of 1969, 
your kit contains, quote, 14 karat gold pierce rings to do the job automatically, painlessly, while you work, sleep, and serve as your very first pair. Wear them 24 hours a day. Slowly, gently, they work their way through your earlobes. In a few days, your ears are completely pierced and you've never felt a thing. Wow. (laughs) Half inch in diameter, $1.98. That would be $15. How did you find that? Those are one of, I looked for like really obscure gifts for you and I had a really hard time finding that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have never heard of such a thing as these things that are supposed to pierce all on their own. I'm curious if any of our listeners have ever tried this or ever even heard of it? Because if it works, it seems like, why haven't we all been doing it this way versus the other way? Well, because the other way is one and done. One second, and it's like, ouch, and over. But yeah, yeah, that immediately reminded me of that scene in Greece where they pierce Sandra ears. But they do it with a hot needle and not something that is supposedly painless. So, (gasps) Right, right. So if any of you have tried these back in the day, give us a shout out. We'd love to hear how it went. And something that that brings up in my head, April, just maybe a future fashion history mystery, is I wonder when women started wearing like multiple studs in their ears and when that trend for like piercing them all the way up. I'm sure, you know, obviously it exists in different cultures around the world, ear piercing, but that might be a really fascinating episode for the future. Just saying. Yeah, we can totally do that. Absolutely. So while we're on the subject of beauty, April, I cannot tell you how far and wide I searched for the perfect vanity case for you to take to accompany you to Versailles next summer. <laughs> Let's just say I did not find it. Um, but I was introduced to, you know, kind of this idea of traveling boxes, which come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, they go back as far as like the 14th century when people packed everything but the kitchen sink to travel abroad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was obviously looking some, for something that was a little bit more beauty related. And I found it in this exquisite, um, it's in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum, um, this 1920s vanity case by the designer Richard Hudnut. How, does that name ring a bell? It sure does. He owned the company DuBerry, which is a cosmetics company. And we have actually done an episode on their quote unquote, success course. Yeah, well, we haven't just done it. You actually did the course. (laughs) (laughs) Much to the, like, our listeners were not happy about that. That was pretty, like, interesting. Like, um, what do you want to call it? Like a case study um, and us, like, doing something while you did it. I didn't. Going back in history and, like, following one of these regimens. It was the diet that people really had issue with because it was extreme. And there were, like, 16 oranges a day. And it was, like, tomato broth with, like, cabbage in it. Yeah. Um, it was a diet that was that people really took issue with. But it was an experiment and, you know, something that was extremely popular at the time. Yeah. And you only did it for a few days. Um, well, this is a beauty set. It comes complete with anything you could possibly need to get prepped and pretty in the 1920s. And Richard Hudna is just super fascinating because he's actually considered to be like maybe the first major American beauty fashion purveyor, um, Mm -hmm. which is is just really interesting. He really created a cosmetic empire beginning in the 19th century. He retired by 1916, um, but sold many of his businesses, which included DeBerry Cosmetics. So I'm gifting you this beautiful, it's uh, kind of like a shocking pink case interior, gold compacts, and everything you would need to get ready in the 1920s. So. Oh, well, thank you. 
I still think you could take it with you too, because Deberry obviously, Why Madame Deberry was Louis the Fifteenth's mistress, so I think it's mm-hmm. quite fitting. Great, we seem to be on a Versailles theme today. Yes, <laughs> uh, and and a jewelry theme because my next gift to you is also jewelry related, and actually co-designed by none other than a past dressed guest. Do you want to? guess which guest that might be because you interviewed this individual. Well, I was going to guess your good friend Bliss Lau, who of course was on the show and is a jewelry designer, but I did not actually interview her, so I'm not entirely sure. Ah, well, it would be Ellen Mirajnik. Oh. From Shondaland, the geniuses behind Bridgerton, comes the Seat at the Table initiative, which partners, quote, the talented artists behind their various productions to create products that are both representative of the creator's work on their respective shows, as well as the creators themselves. And you guessed it. Your next gift was co-designed by Bridgerton costume designer and past-dressed guest, Ellen Varajnik, and also fine jeweler Monica Rich Kosan, who have partnered together on a line of jewelry inspired by Bridgerton. Which is, of course, one of our favorite, favorite shows. I'm, like, obsessed with that show. I can't wait for season three. I know. What's going to happen next? <laughs> Cotton candy <laughs> is all I could say. Well, just listeners, if you two are also Bridgerton fans, Monica and Ellen have designed, quote, three core styles for the collection, a posy ring, a charm, and a locket. Um, posy rings date back as early as the 15th century and bore poetic inscriptions that were exchanged as expressions of friendship, inspiration, and love. And just a little bit about the collection. Uh, the pieces are offered in sterling and also in 18 karat gold. Some have diamonds and sapphires. Price ranges for pieces in the collection range anywhere from 160 to the most expensive piece, which is, of course, has a ton of diamonds in it, is $3,200. So if anyone out there would like to check out the Bridgerton inspired jewelry collection, which is entitled Bridgerton times the Monica Rich Cosan Fine Jewelry. Um, you can head over to Monica Rich Cosan, and that's K-O-S-A-N-N.com to check it out. If you actually happen to be in New York City, uh, Monica has a store in Columbus Circle and in Hudson Yards, and pieces are also available there. Oh, lovely. I didn't even think to shop contemporary gifts for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really the Bridgerton connection. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the world is our oyster and so is history, right? True that. So, okay, I have your last gift and it's actually not for you, oh. but for the adorable little Frenchie that I often see behind you in all of our uh, recording sessions, Clementine. Well, the, the one <laughs> where we just had to stop the recording because she was chewing on the couch pillow? Yes. That one? Well, she is about to be fashionably decked out, y'all, because I went into the Met Museum collection and found this 1920s coat by the Design House of Galena. It's got a fabulous floral embroidered collar. It's silk velvet. Um, It's kind of like in a grayish purple color. And of course, it's a harness coat um, so that she will be as fashionable as her mother this winter. And uh, just a little blurb from the Met, they say that today, as in the 1920s, dogs are sometimes seen as fashion accessories with different breeds rising and falling in popularity according to prevailing tastes. I would say Frenchies are definitely in fashion. They've been in fashion for quite a while. Small dogs, known as the quote-unquote toy breeds, often appear in ads of the 1920s, fulfilling the dual role of companion and status symbol for stylish women. This couture ensemble clearly was meant for 
just such a pampered pet. It includes this coat as well as a matching collar and leash and features refined details such as gold tone metal studs, fine silk threads, and a tag engraved with the name of the dog, who apparently was a Pomeranian named Fifi. Obviously, we're changing that to Clem. Um, (laughs) So decked out in this set, Fifi would have been an accessory as alluring as a fetching hat or elegant parasol. So... Oh, well, Clemmy says thank you. She will love to wear that off the streets of New York City. <laughs> Won't you, Clem? Well, Clementine sends you tons of big slobbery kisses and says thank oh, you very thank much. You. Also, a big thank you to all of our listeners because this is the last episode of season five. Yes, it is. And with that, we're concluding our holiday gift exchange, April. That was so fun. Um, And we are just going to take a little bit of a hiatus, but we're going to be back in a month on January 17th with season six. But do not fret, dress listeners. We are actually going to be highlighting eight of the episodes we discussed in our dress guide to dress over the next four weeks. So hopefully that will keep you busy with some of our favorite episodes. Yeah. So we won't be airing new episodes while we're on hiatus for a month to take a little time off over the holidays, but we will still, we'll be airing some of our favorite episodes from the past. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the gift of fashion in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to reach out to us during the hiatus, send us a message, perhaps some suggestions for episodes for season six or your fashion history mystery questions, you can write to us via email at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. And you can do that at dressed underscore podcast. And as always, special thank yous to Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. We will catch you next year. (laughs) Happy holidays and happy new year to all. Happy holidays and happy new year. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.